So, thank you for your question. So the question, the comment is about, we've talked a lot about the unpleasant uh, physical, emotional, mental uh, experiences in, that we come across in practice and we've offered a lot of suggestions of how to be with them, be aware of them, how to work with them. And now, now finally, late in the retreat, had a, had a pleasant experience. <laughs> no. <laughs> I had some pleasant experiences and just wondering how to work with them, both in the uh, formal retreat or in, in a formal sitting or retreat experience and in life outside of retreat. Is that the question? <coughs> I want to say something funny. but. I had I had one once too. <laughs> I promptly indulged in it and it went away of course but no. Okay, erase that part. So, um You know, of, uh, just to clarify something uh, first, the Buddha never said that you should avoid pleasant experiences. He did not say that. He just said, you know, be aware of whatever rises, whatever the experience is. We do, you know, as, as you all know, we do experience a lot of unpleasant physical, mental, emotional stuff. And in time, through the, mo sometimes through the momentum of awareness, we do experience, uh, pleasant experiences, some of them conditioned by the quality of awareness itself, meaning you know, we, we experience like a lot of calmness in the body and calmness in the mind. Or we feel a stability, you know, when the mind isn't racing and it's just kind of quiet and the body feels really stable and easeful. Uh, and then there's joyful experiences where we just feel like um, something like, well, effort is effortless. You know, the energy to be aware is effortless. We don't have to kind of struggle with it. It's just kind of like you sit down, it's just like, just happens. And sometimes we can feel uh, like the body's very light, where we just feel like we're being lifted out of our seat. And it's just, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not trying to make that happen. It just happens. So there are a number of pleasant experiences that we can have both physically mentally and sometimes the physical is conditioned by the mental experience of good practice. So what is the instruction for dealing with uh, unpleasant physical and mental experience? Open to it, receive it, feel it, acknowledge it, be with it, you know, know recognize the awareness of that experience as an object and see what happens to it. So if it's unpleasant, we have to be careful not to be, or to at least to notice if there's any form of aversion, like disliking or criticizing or pushing away or impatience with or irritation with. So too, when pleasant experiences arise, open, allow, receive, acknowledge, name or identify what it is, be with it and watch your relationship to it. Now, what is the relationship to pleasant experience? I like it. I want more of it. And we indulge in it. We kind of like, 
ooze into it. We're quite, we're quite happy to kind of get merged with pleasant experience. It's like, uh, uh, you know, we just kind of gooey, gooey into it. And that's indulging and it's losing, losing the awareness of it. So same as with unpleasant. We recognize, we name, we observe, we feel into it, we uh, watch carefully if the mind is just indulging in it or if the mind is uh, just uh, kind of thinking or assuming, this is it, finally, (laughs) I got what I came for. A little calm, a little stability, a little clarity, a little joy, whatever. And watch the mind's Subtle, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle comments about pleasant experience. Hi, thank you. Um, So I had a question based on a previous question, which was, I mean, I feel like I'm doing it right, which is like I'm noticing the object and then my attitude of mind of the object, and that's all good and everything, I mean, I guess. But... um, like, for example, I hear the birds, and I'm happy that I finally get to hear the birds, and then I'm upset that the birds aren't on the other side because they cut the tree down, so then I'm sensing greed, I, you know. But then I'm, like, wondering, um, like, if that's all there is, and I'm kind of waiting to, like, level up because I get that, you know, I'm getting, like, the, the you know, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, all of that. I'm seeing hindrances, but, like, is there something else? Uh, I heard the words, but I'm not sure I know what you mean. So, like, not necessarily saying past lifetimes. I'm not saying that. Oh, is there something like higher? Do you know what I mean? Other than like the three characteristics and tendencies. So we got okay. So the comment is, you know objects, aware of them, watching your attitude of mind, and um, recognizing the hindrances and three characteristics, and then, is there more? Is there more? That's the question. Because it seems like there should be. It seems like there should be more. That's above my pay grade. <laughs> When this happens over and over again, which is good practice, you know, when the mind is seeing the impermanence of everything, even momentary impermanence, and when because of seeing that, there's this understanding that arises that um, can't hold on to anything, you know, so that understanding of dukkha comes along, which is like, why hold on because it's just going to go away anyway, but enjoy it when it's there or have some wisdom with it how to skillfully respond in the world. And then also the impermanence brings on this understanding of like uh, even noticing whatever component parts of what makes up this sense of self, you know, the, the parts of the body, the parts of the mind, it's so, everything is so ephemeral. It's also impermanent. There's no solid core anywhere in any one part of it nor is there in any combination of any parts together. So over and over again, uh, the mind, heart, keeps getting this understanding, this message. So what comes after that is that those kinds of wisdoms that I just talked about keep developing 
over and over and over again until there is this kind of tipping point um, that when it happens to a certain degree, a certain number of times, a certain level of clarity of the mind, which comes together from the momentum and the continuity of practice, there comes to be these really, they can be subtle or they can be big, aha moments like, oh right, I finally got it, you know. And it's, it, the getting it is like, be, let's be really careful with what we put out into the world in terms of are we putting out um, unskillful actions, unskillful words. And from that understanding that there's nothing to hold on to, the lessening of craving for things that lead to, um, lead to suffering, the lessening of that comes along. And the lessening of hatred comes along because we sort of, we understand the impersonality of everything. I mean, this is getting really deep now. Sometimes for a beginner, it may not make sense at all. But what's happening all along this way is a purification of mind is taking place. And especially the purification of view um, that actually um, Mark got into last night. So this purification of greed, hatred, and delusion the purification of view comes, and so all this wisdom begins to arise. And this wisdom mind that is there is still taking part in, you know, the understanding right action, right right speech in the world. This Eightfold Noble Path is said to lead, what leads to Nibbana, what leads to the end of suffering, is the Eightfold Noble Path, which is, wisdom and this purification of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind simply by understanding this anicca dukkha nata at deepening levels. And so when that purification takes place, the mind feels really cleared out. The heart and mind feels really cleared out of greed, hatred, delusion. There's a sense of understanding how the mind is purified bit by bit by bit. And when the, as the mind gets purified, it gets closer and closer to that, um, to the ability for the mind to leap into what is called beyond all conditions, which is nibbana or nirvana. So that's where that this is leading to eventually. Now, a lot of people don't, don't even care about that part, you know, just want calm, harmony in one's life. But the Buddha's teaching is really leading beyond all of that. So as you keep doing the practice, and as you have been through these years, um, even though you don't have that, maybe that far-reaching aspiration, your practice is actually still taking you there. So that's, if you just keep having trust in this moment-to-moment purification of um, speech, purification of behavior, purification of view, the mind will actually still take you to that place beyond all conditioned reality, which is the unconditioned, which is called Nibbana or Nirvana. So that, in a nutshell, is (laughs) is where it's leading to, as the Buddha says, to the highest. Even though it's not necessarily one's aspiration, it's still leading there.
question relates to what has been just said um, and a question around how to practice it. When I connect to the birds and to walking, to stepping, to things outside, I, pack, I can be very clear about the experience. And when I start to incline the mind, what's the attitude of the mind, what's the motion in the mind, it, it all can become quite fuzzy. It's not necessarily always clear then. And then the question is, sometimes I start to work very hard to figure out what's mm. in the mind. And then I wonder, it's sometimes not better to, again, go to the birds and to the outside and kind of go from backward. Uh, what is a good way of eventually mm. climbing the mind without mm. forcing it? Yeah. So the comment is about how, how, to, how, to, how to practice what Kamala just mentioned, how to, how to move along in that direction. And that when you are aware of external sight, sounds, things, you, you can you can see you can be aware and it's clear and you have a a kind of a a non entangled relationship. But when you look inside, uh, it seems kind of fuzzy and unclear and it's not always easy to uh, know the the qualities of mind and and what to do with that and whether to kind of pendulate back and forth, go outside, get clear, come inside, hope that the clarity comes with you, or something like that, right? You know. Yes, and more than that. Uh, as, we, as we cultivate this quality of awareness, we use very ordinary, mundane, recurring experiences like the breath, sounds, seeing, hearing, very simple things. You know, the posture, sitting, standing, walking. And it can seem kind of... Uh, ordinary, mundane, boring, um, nothing special. But what's happening every time we, every moment we're aware like that, the power of awareness becomes more power, more collected, more powerful, has more momentum, and it's harder to lose it. So that when events, internal events, emotions and dramas and upsetness of one sort or another arise due to conditions in the world and interactions with people and thoughts of you know the body getting sick and old and but all those things when the internal uh, experience becomes intense or, or subtle then the momentum of mindfulness is so strong that it also recognizes that without flinching without turning away, without, you know, kind of aversion or desire or whatever. And so then we, we become, you know, it does take some practice to begin to recognize all that's going on in here, in, in, our, in our heart, in our mind. And uh, gradually we learn to identify where the tension, where the source of pain or discontentment is in our heart. And... You know, the first time we see it, it's overwhelming. The second time, it's still overwhelming. And But after dozens of times of seeing, you know, how we get our buttons pushed and we get irritated and angry and fearful and jealous and depressed and all those things, eventually we learn to recognize the conditions that give rise. We recognize those states of mind. We become willing to open to them, to feel them, to learn about them. And in time, we're not entangled in them. 
the conditions in the world and the conditions in the body that we become aware of could still tend towards fearfulness or judgment or anger or desire. And yet we're aware that those mental states, we understand now, those mental states lead to suffering. And so we don't go there. And so we have more, what I'm going to call equanimity, more balance. The world is the way it is. The body is still going to grow, get sick, grow old, and die. But we, the mind can stay balanced. The mind can be not caught in, not reacting to. And equanimity like that, or that balance of mind, is really um, the, uh, the, the proximate benefit. I mean, that's, that's as good as it gets until the mind falls into the unconditioned. And to live our life from the place of being open to and receptive to and able to acknowledge everything that comes towards us and comes up within us and have a balanced mind about that is really good. It's really good. That's the, you know, the, ben- the best benefit for you know, living fully as a human being engaged with all of life. So that equanimity. And it takes time. You know, um, just a p- personal story. You know, I grew up in a pretty, well, a normal, a quite, quite a normal, usual, dysfunctional family. You know, I mean, you know, so when you grow up with an alcoholic and a drug addict, you know, you, 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 have, a, you have a challenging childhood and you don't learn all that would be good to learn and know as an adult. And so, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't get much pointing out or help in identifying feelings, emotions, you know, didn't, didn't know anything about it, really. You know, I was either okay or moody. You know, and that's it. That was the full range of my, you know, inner terrain. I, I didn't know anything else that was going on in my mind. I was moody, hmm, or I was okay. Well, I have to thank mindfulness practice for kind of encouraging me and allowing me and forcing on me the realization that there's more going on. And, you know, now I have two emotions. No. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you know, I have a fuller range, more differentiation. And, uh, and, And I can sometimes be equanimous with them. You know, but at least I'm I'm more aware of them and a little more equanimous, but there's still room for improvement. Bill, before um, you go, anything else comes, I just wanted to add on to both of what you said. So what that does, this equanimity that Steve is talking about, and also, you know, the understanding from equanimity that the, the mind can go even further than that, into understanding a kind of peace that's beyond one's mental understanding or even one's, it's beyond everything, is that the mind and heart and one's life becomes much more sensitive to acting and speaking in ways that cause harmony. And actually also speaking up. So with regard to some, the gentleman said this morning, it doesn't, it doesn't stand back and say, this is how it is right now. It says, this is how it is right now, and either I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say or do something about it, 
Or maybe it's the right time to just be quiet. We often don't give ourselves that um, option, too, that it, there are times to just really step back and assess what's going on in here. That's what big-time awareness does before we speak or act. So equanimity gives us that option that we really have the, the power to really assess what's going on in here And if we deem that it's skillful for us to speak right now and there's clarity of mind so we can say with strength but without anger but with vigor, maybe even shouting sometimes, this is wrong, you know, and to take action in the world and sometimes to know that what's going on in here right now is not going to eventually be um, skillful out there in the world. So we we wait, and we wait for the time to to act. So it doesn't mean at all, this equanimity or this purification of mind, that we don't act in the world. It it means that we just know ourselves enough that we know when when to act and when to speak. So more about that later, but that's an important point, because things about taking this out into the world are coming up right now, and we still, we're going to talk more about that um, towards, you know, like taking the practice home on Saturday. We'll have a whole session about that. Way back there then? Oh, I, I, I just oh, sorry. called the white, and woman then... in white, yeah. So the question is about habits of mind, yes. Yes. and Can you is talk a little bit more about that? habits of mind. Um, I think we all, uh, you know, just as we grow up, we learn from parents and peers and others, you know, how to respond, you know, and sometimes our, you know, these become habits to to respond in in really not very skillful ways. Some people use anger as a way of getting attention, getting their way, making themselves heard. Some people use, you know, uh, you know, just insatiable desire to just kind of get, 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 have come, become, get, have more. Uh, some people get depressed with facing the facing the challenges of life. Some people get really manic about it. So you know, we have. We have habits. We have our preferred patterns of reactivity or responsivity. And some of them have, you know, are painful to us, some painful to others, some are relatively benign, some are even skillful. But as we become aware of them, as we become mindfully aware of what we're actually doing in reaction to the conditions of our life, then we can begin to understand, oh, this is skillful or this, or this is not skillful. This, this causes me or others suffering, or it doesn't. And we can begin to uh, not only just kind of control ourselves to not act that way or to speak that way, we can actually see the harm that it causes and have a different understanding of ourself, different understanding of the causes that condition our behaving that way and 
choose to respond differently than to react habitually. You know, so really awareness brings knowledge, knowledge brings change, and when we change our understanding, or as our understanding changes, we are going to act differently, you know, because we have more understanding of the effects of our behavior. So let's go back there. So I'll I'll say a little bit about it. Maybe you can add. So the comment and the question has to do about dreams, and uh, it's they've been very vivid uh, during this time. And just a little comment about that: when we're in a retreat like this, sometimes dreams do become more vivid, mainly because we're just more clear, more mindful of what's going on, and also there there can be more remembering of them when we wake up. And so then there is this kind of um, uh, pulling or wanting, in, maybe in a good way, to see what is, what is this all about anyway? What, kind of like, how is this put together? What's the meaning of it? Is well, that, sort of like, do I give it attention? Do one is give... a place for awareness or should I let it go as a state, state of nature and not put a whole lot of energy? Okay, so do we give it attention... Uh, or just put it away and, and just see it as nature. So it, here's the thing with dreaming. If one wake up and there is a, a dream and then there's remembering the dream, it, it's really simple to know it as remembering. Oh, remembering. And then, so also the state of mind that you wake up with might be actually apparent to you at that time. So turn to the state of mind, what's going on in the mind right now, the relationship of the mind about the dream. And it might be like whatever, fear or pleasant or hopeful or, you know, whatever the state of mind is. So knowing that would be really just important is to know that that's part of the how the dream affected the mind. So then maybe later on, this is what just naturally happens, there's this like, oh, you along the way picked up the content of it, right? I mean, you can't help but pick up the content sometimes. And it's interesting. So this is how my mind would work. I've noticed, oh, the mind's really interested. It's kind, it kind of wants to chew on that dream. 
And what I would do, though, is if it's significant, I might ponder or reflect on it a little bit. But a lot of times, because there's been a lot of looking at the mind, even from dream states or from waking states, and there's some idea already, there's some understanding already that this is just another, um, I just call it excrete of the mind. You know, it's just kind of excreting out something that needed to be excreted out, and I don't need to go over it again. It's just, and then sometimes you'll realize that if I start going over this, uh, it's going to get that habit going, and it's just going to happen for half a day, and just miss a lot of other. <laughs> so I would, I don't usually pay that much attention to the dream state. And actually, in our practice with our teachers, um, yeah, not to go into content so much with things like that. But I was just kind of playing along to you what what actually happens. Yeah. I, I think it's a, just important to acknowledge that there are some traditions and some yes. psychotherapies and some other... There are some ways of working with dream material uh, that can be revealing, but we don't, we don't use those here mm-hmm. and we don't, we don't poo-poo it or dismiss it. We just, we just don't use that particular uh, technique or know that way of doing it. Uh, if you have a, a, dream, a dream therapy thing or whatever, then that can be interesting to do. But I think the, the, the point I would make about being on retreat, and a lot of people have, have re- report uh, intense dreams, intense in a lot of them, and remembering them in, in a greater number than when they're not on retreat. And it's partly because, you know, what, well, what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is remembering, to observe, to recognize, and to become intimate with the present moment, right? That's, that's the whole range of qualities of mindfulness. That isn't, that isn't the part of the mind that goes to sleep. The part of the mind that goes to sleep when you fall asleep is not mindfulness. Mindfulness is still working. It's like, you know, when you go to the gym and you, you work your muscles and you get your muscles built up. Just because you're not at the gym doesn't mean those muscles don't work. They're, they're still available for whatever you need them for. Well, same thing with awareness. Or mindfulness. It's like, yeah, we work hard to train and to develop that, but when you fall asleep, something else goes to sleep, not not mindfulness. So the mindfulness is still there with noticing whatever's going on. <laughs> By the way, I do that separately. Uh, I I have a signif- when I have significant dreams, I talk it over with my therapist. So it's a separate thing. Yeah. <laughs> Are you choosing? Okay. Oh, just. Um, so you talked about not having a solid core, and that's the worldview that I came into this retreat with. And I've also heard nature and natural mentioned a number of times, which seems to me to suggest this idea of a, some sort of essence or solid core, or something that's like ontologically there ahead that's in the world already. So can you talk more about the non-solid core and your, or the sort of Buddhist idea or the Vipassana idea of nature? So the question is about uh, uh, self and non-self, or a solid core or not solid core, or 
all of this that's happening here being nature, a display of nature rather than an, an, an entity within. Something like that. Hmm? Or a being it's within. It's really helpful to hear that rephrasing. Because oh. I didn't have that understanding at all. So that's oh. great. <laughs> <laughs> Phew. Okay, I was wondering how I was going to answer that. <laughs> Well, this is a famous, this is a well-known trick among uh, Dharma teachers. If somebody asks a question that is pretty convoluted and kind of, you rephrase it to something that you can answer. <laughs> or as, or as Menindra used to do, you know, whatever question was asked, he would give whatever answer he wanted, whether it answered the question or not. <laughs> Even not to another subject. Yeah, it's like, oh, I, I don't want to answer that question. I'm going to talk about imp- impermanence. <laughs> so... Um, you know, I, I, I sometimes use this, this kind of example. You know, when I was born, you know, came into the world, mom picked me up and she started hugging and I was, would start to feel this kind of body and she would say, oh, Stevie, Stevie. You're such a good little boy, boy, <laughs> you know, and you're good, <laughs> you know, and stroking and all that. And, and, you know, she would do that day after day and hour after hour and feed me and give me everything I needed, you know. So I was like, yeah, 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 I'm Steve, I'm a boy, I'm good, yeah, 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 give me, give me, give me, more, more. So, you know, and Dad picked me up once or twice and, you know, <laughs> hi, Steve, <laughs> you know, and, and, and here I am. 68 years later, who are you? Steve. I'm a good little boy. I'm a good big boy now. <laughs> but the, the identification with this body and with this mental activity of feelings and thoughts and relationships feels like there really is a entity in here that is Steve. It, it, you know, it feels like there's someone in here. But actually, and, and you know what, the idea of there being someone here is really, is really useful. You know, we need it in life. In life, in the relative world of interactions with other people, it's good to know who you are, what your name is, what your feelings are, to be differentiated from others, and to be able to relate to each other. So in a relative sense, I'm here, you're there, you're there, and we're able to relate to each other knowing that we have this agreement that you're someone, I'm someone, Okay, but actually, when you close your eyes, you know, everybody else disappears. Close your eyes, nobody in here. You know, there are sounds, and different people may speak, but that's just sounds. Or when I, when I close my eyes and don't see the body, so to speak, it's just sensations appearing somewhere. You know, we identify them as in my body, because we know the anatomy of the body, we know the size, shape, color, texture, whatnot. But actually, these things occur just because of nature. You know, it's like, thank you mom and dad, and the karma stream that landed in the womb somewhere, and here I am. But really, when we, when we go inside and we pay attention to thoughts and feelings and emotions and whatnot, it's really hard to say, these are mine. This is me. This is mine. This is my body. Because it, it's got a life of its own, independent of my wishes. And the mind too, for the most part. 
you know, it's got, you know, most of the, what the mind does is, if I had to think of everything that the mind does, I, I would have, I wouldn't be able to think of everything that needs to be done to kind of get through a day. So the mind has its own nature. The mind has its own activities. The body too has its own nature. It has its own activities. I just claim some of them. I claim the appearance, the size, the shape, the color, the texture, and I claim some of the thoughts that I like and some of the emotions that I have to deal with. And the rest is just, well, they just happen. They just, they come with the package, so to speak. So we, we get identified with our body and mind and the activities of it. Even, you know, we look in the mirror every day and we say, yeah, <laughs> that's me. You know, and we're so identified with our appearance that when it changes, it can really affect how we think of ourselves. Huh. Not only the appearance, but the functioning of the body. When the body stops functioning in a familiar way, you know, when you start having aches and pains, or you can't see so good, you can't hear so good, and other things don't work so good, you start thinking, oh, there's something wrong with me. It's just the body wearing out. It's like a car. <laughs> it just, just wears out. Eventually it's going to the, the junkyard. I mean, I hate to be so kind of graphic about it, but it's true. And so then it's not, even, it's not even just the physical experience or appearance or functioning. It's even our statistics. You know, it's like, what's your cholesterol level? Oh, my cholesterol is high. I, I, there's something wrong with me. I have high cholesterol or I have high blood pressure, or low blood pressure, or whatever. And it's like we get identified with our statistics. It's like they're mine. It's like, really? This, this is nature. It means clear. It's just nature, isn't it? It's like what you eat, and how much exercise you get, and karma, and weather, and conditions, and whatnot. That's what's giving rise to this thing here. Not me. Not not because I do anything about that. I can't make it happen or not not happen. <clears throat> so when we, to the extent that we're identified with, I'm in here. This is my body, my mind, my thoughts. We can really suffer. But as we see, as we begin to see, oh, this is this is nature playing out here. The nature of the body, the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart. And we can choose. We can train the mind, and we can choose to act skillfully and respond rather than to react and minimize suffering for this body and mind. But in the end, it's got to go its own way. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's helpful or not. But. Just wanted to add one more thing. If you consider nature to be a process that's always moving, it's helpful. It's not <clears throat> some like concrete, stable thing. I substitute the word unfolding every time you say nature, then it makes sense to me. Yeah. But, but nature, like being this. Yeah. Yeah. Different. So, okay. Thank you. Shift. Um, so, in Tijaniya's book, uh, one thing he says is it's only possible to meditate with a light and free mind. And if I'm understanding that correctly, uh, it would be to try to relax the mind if that doesn't work to put awareness on what is occurring in the mind uh, and wait until the mind is calm before continuing. One of it, So that's one part of the question. But the other part is that sometimes I notice that 
I don't want to be aware uh, that there's resistance to that. And so that's one thing I'm confused about right now. So the comment in the book uh, that you read was, uh, you can only meditate when the mind is light and... Light and free, light and calm. So <clears throat> I think what, what Sayadaw Tejani is pointing to is just as you said, how to, um, how, to, how to relax the mind. If we've got an agenda, I'm gonna make the mind do this, and I want it to figure out that, and, and I want it to be calm, and it's like, you can't, you can't force the mind. You know, when you have an agenda like that, or when you're really tense, or st- struggling, or you know, it, you're just struggling and you know, you're not able to open to and receive and acknowledge even the gross things, let alone the subtle things that are occurring in the body and the mind. So while you can do a lot with the body that you force in the mind, in the mind that you force, you focus, you direct, I mean, we, a lot of us have to do that at work. You know, you gotta, you gotta stand at the machine and do the, do the work. You gotta you know, keep your mind engaged on work and a certain task, so to speak, task-oriented behavior, physically and mental, uh, you know, that's not meditation. I mean, it can be focusing, and it can be very collecting, it can be very, you know, intensely involved like that, but as you, as you know, you miss a lot of what's going on. You have to deny or avoid and just not pay attention to a lot that's going on in the body and a lot that's going on in the mind. And so you don't know a lot of what's going on. So the meditation that he's talking about is to, you know, really understand what is going on in the mind and the body and their relationship with each other and the environment. Because that's where, to the extent that we understand what's going on, that's where we either get caught in suffering or peace. You know, and if you don't pay attention, you can, you can accomplish a lot, but you might not be peaceful or you might not be free. You can be really entangled, really caught in striving, really caught in, you know, uh, ambition or achievement or frustration, disappointment, depression. There was something over here, yes. But, but there was a second question. Yeah, um, okay. Just, So sometimes you don't want to be aware, or you recognize that you don't want to be aware. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, when you don't want to be aware, um, that's, that's, that's actually being quite aware. You know what? It's when we don't know that we don't want to be aware. That's when we're caught in delusion and fantasy and denial and avoidance, and we all have those, those skills also. And we're not very aware. We're just lost in thought and daydream and, you know, kind of fantasizing and making plans that'll never happen and ruminating and stuff like that. Then we're not aware. The mind is still working, you know, in, in, in knowing and doing stuff, but we're not recognizing it. So what do you mean when you say, sometimes I don't want to be aware? Yeah. To remember to be aware 
So, so the, the comment is that when she feels exhausted or when you feel um, just kind of overburdened with what, what you're aware of, you just would like to be unaware and just kind of like drift off in a fantasy or just kind of, you know, but it takes a lot of effort. You know, we think, we often think that being aware takes a lot of energy. What we don't realize is that all the thinking we do is taking all the energy. You know, and when, you know, at the end of the day, after we've been thinking all day, we're exhausted. But actually, when awareness, when we're able to practice awareness and, and gain some momentum with it, and it gets its own rhythm and momentum, you know, we don't get as tired. Being aware of things, because we're not picking and choosing and yes and no and reacting and pushing and figuring out and explaining. We're just kind of like, here it is. I get it. Here it is again. I get it. Okay. You know, so the mind is actually much more energized by practicing than by not practicing. But we don't see that initially. And so we get tired, you know, after several hours of trying to be aware. We get tired and we'd like to avoid it. That's, that's understandable. We get exhausted and that's not pleasant. But when the momentum is, of awareness is there, you don't need to sleep as much. You just, you know, sleep little and very energized, and it's fine. So, I can understand wanting to, um, wanting to escape the exhausted feeling or the trying to be aware feeling. Take a nap, lay down, do laying down meditation until you fall asleep. It's okay. One thing you could do is just um, discern. If you put your energy, mindfulness energy, somewhere, where would it be that it would be kind of easy? Like hearing, you know, just open, receptive attention. A lot of times hearing can be a place to go when you feel exhausted because when you open the attention to hearing, there's automatically hearing taking place. It's naturally receptive. So you don't have to do much there. And that's a way you can rest the mind, but still um, carry on the momentum of being aware. And, but if you choose to go into, you know, just into fantasy, if you can really understand that you're inculcating delusion, you might really want to choose something where you can still be aware. Because um, if, if we keep choosing, I'll just go into fantasy land, that's the habit pattern that will be born of that. Yeah. So that's why, you know, when you, when you can be aware of something that's like more easeful, that's a better choice. Or just, you know, on the breath, even though you miss a lot of it, just come back. Then you're choosing to be awake and aware. And that's a habit pattern you're feeding. We over here. Yeah. Um, you started, Kamala, you started talking about it before uh, that that we do need to at, at times speak up, and then we need to discern when to speak, how to speak. So for me, over the years, the challenge is that as I'm getting more aware, more mindful, and having a little bit of wisdom, the challenge for me is, and I still have ego, 
uh, is that is that blending of ego and and wise discerning one with people who haven't been practicing for a lot of years and who don't have you know unnecessarily mindfulness and awareness and wanting to be respectful of them. So mm -hmm. in other words, I have let's say this well, well, um, as much mindfulness and awareness that I have because of all the years, and yet I want to be sensitive if I'm expressing myself or being myself with someone who doesn't have, let's say, uh, you know, a number of years of, of mindfulness practice. And, and this is a challenge for me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> let's see if I can put that in a nutshell. So it's um, wanting to express oneself to uh, others who may not have as much background in this kind of awareness practice. And um, that's a challenge for you to do that. So I, I need to understand, what, what is the challenge? You're saying that, yes, there's still ego, meaning identification with yeah, certain parts. Ego is the need for the person to understand what I want to share. Oh, know? the need for the person to understand what you want to share. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when there, the example is that uh, when, like there are people that are yelling and screaming, and you need to speak up because it's sort of like there's there's a, a needing or a wanting to help somebody who's sick and needs the protection of not being yelled at, etc. So what what do you do? Yeah. So to say if yeah to say something skillful. They don't get it. Yeah. Again, I think it's my needing to accept that I don't have I can say whatever I want to say, but I don't have control over how it's received. Well, you answered your own question. You can say what you need to say that was very skillful the way you put it. You're not it doesn't seem like you're right now putting it out with a lot of anger or rancor, uh, it's just saying what you need to say and how, they, if you put it out there in a skillful way, um, yeah, we, we have to be careful to know what the impact would be though, you know, but we still, we're putting it out there with the best of intentions, we're trying to make the impact land in a way, and sometimes the impact doesn't land that way. <laughs> Um, and so we can't take responsibility for that. But it is true, I have to say, that we can't just stay with, well, my intention wasn't to hurt. We do have to use some intelligence and some empathy and some wherewithal to understand not just our intention, but how is this going to land? The way I say it, the way the words are put together, if there is... You know, in, in this day and age, we have to understand if there is some implicit 
bias that's within there. We have to really we have to really examine and understand so that we're paying attention to impact as well as to intention. And then you you know ultimately we can't take responsibility for for how it impacts people. Um, and then sometimes it impacts in a way that we learn just at that moment, like, oh, this didn't go very well. So it's a learning situation, and we say, when these conditions come together again, I'm going to be much more careful about how what I say or do is going to impact this group. That takes a lot of skill. There's another, there's another dimension to this that I want that, to, that practice helps us to get in touch with. Uh, as we as we observe our own process and stuff and how we get hooked into suffering of one sort or another and and are blinded by our own views and opinions and whatnot, we begin to understand the causes and the conditions that give rise to anger, insensitivity, denial, and other things. And so it's understanding the causes and conditions that helps us understand what is the best way to approach this situation. So you see someone acting out in a way that's causing harm. You could just go grab them and say, stop that, that's bad. Well, okay, that's kind of addressing your effort and energy to the, um, the symptom. The cause of the the causes and conditions of their acting that way are delusion, confusion, anger, etc. And so you might find a way to address that rather than just stopping their behavior with your own whatever, is, is somehow point to another way of understanding the situation or just point to how their behavior is impacting because you understand when you act like that, that person isn't going to get better or whatever, or isn't going to feel calmer or more at ease or more safe or more comfortable or more cared for. And if you can point to the causes and conditions, then you affect the result. So it's kind of the indirect approach, but it's much more effective. So when the Buddha was talking about suffering, he'd, he'd always say, suffering and the causes of suffering you know, we're not just trying to stop suffering. We're trying to stop suffering and the causes of suffering. Because if we address the cause, the suffering won't happen. So that's what we learn through insight practices. We learn to recognize the causes and conditions that give rise to our own suffering. So we know when we see others suffering in a similar way, we know the causes and conditions. So can we address those with our speech, our actions, behavior, whatever, and see if that can change or has an effect on their behavior. Yeah. So I think as we, you know, as we awaken, as we all continue the practice and we awaken to our own um, way of being in the world, we self-knowledge, it, 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 it comes with an implicit, you know, we, we, we're responsible. We're just responsible for ourselves. We're responsible for um, finding a way to bring this understanding into the world, to act on the you know with the integ- with integrity with what we understand about ourselves, 
And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of delusion in the world. There's a lot of ignorance in the world. There's a lot of you know, uh, not understanding things like, or not caring even about suffering or the end of suffering. And so, in some ways, and, and many of you have acknowledged, it gets harder. In some ways, it gets harder because you see more suffering, and you see how hard it is to deal with the causes of suffering. And yet, we're more sensitive to suffering, and it's like that's why you know a lot of a lot of people who practice very much end up in not end up in, but just really find their the cha- their challenge in life is how to act, how to live compassionately in this suffering world. Because it's it's pretty obvious, <laughs> you know. So that's the uh, the two wings of the Dharma are wisdom, understanding, and compassion. So as we as we grow in our own self knowledge, we can't help but want to be more compassionate. It's the only compassion is the expression of wisdom. When you see the conditions of the world in yourself and others, that's where the, it's not like you need to be compassionate. You want to be compassionate. Time's up. Okay. Thank you for your questions. It's always good to you know, have the opportunity to discuss um, Dharma questions and, you know, both about practice and about integrating Dharma into your life and the effect of living a Dharma lifestyle and how to and why to. And, you know, some of you are just here for your first retreat. Great. You know, we've been practicing 40-some years this lifetime. Gosh knows how much before then. And... It's good to share. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.